0: This is O-Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, chameleon collective founding partner, Freddie Laker. Hi everyone, and welcome to the first episode of O-Ship for 2023. But it is not just the first episode of 2023. It is actually our hundredth episode. I can't believe we made it this far. I think a lot of podcasts and web series like this peter out after just a couple episodes. And luckily, I apparently enjoy the sound of my own voice because I was willing to suffer through those early episodes as we built an audience. And I'm so thankful to all of you that tune in every week and make or ship the, the web series that it is. So thank you again for your support. It means the world to me to be still doing this after so many years now and and reaching our 100th episode. And to celebrate that 100th episode, we have a really, really, really great guest on today called David Chang. Now, if you haven't heard of David before, he has got a really great background as a true serial entrepreneur and a really prolific angel investor. Currently, he's the general manager of the expert network at Hunt Club, which we're going to hear a little bit more about in a minute. He is a 6X entrepreneur with six exits. He's been in everything from fintech to ad tech to photo sharing to travel sites. He's sold these companies to firms like E-Trade to PayPal to Expedia and more. He's invested in over 80 startups. He's one of the co-founding members of TBD Angels, which I'm, I think is prominent in the way he, he, he does this investing. He's an educator, he's worked closely with notable universities as the director and advisor of the summer program at Babson College, actually a college I would have loved to have gone to, It's he has been an entrepreneur in residence at Harvard Business School. So needless to say, this guy's been around the block just a little bit. And so when he and I started talking about what would be a great chat for today's episode, he really inspired me with the subject. But I'm going to quote Albert Einstein who famously said, life is just a game. First, you have to learn the rules of the game, and then you have to play it better than anyone else. And so today's chat is actually about the life of entrepreneurs, brave enough or crazy enough to start a company, depending on how you want to look at it. So let's call that the startup tech game. And today's guest has great insights on how to play your hand at basic key inflection points in a business. So with that Here we go with the first episode of O'Ship in 2023. David, welcome to O'Ship. Freddie, so excited to be here for 100. I know, it's big, by the way. I hope I did your intro justice. I'm available for weddings and bar mitzvahs. I'm a great hype man. If you're starting a hip hop group, I can, you know, be in the back and just hype people up. I'm 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 getting pretty good at it.
1: You <laughs> have clearly done this before. Like many <laughs> times you've gotten very good at it
0: so <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. I shared a little bit about your background in the beginning. Oh, and and I I read recently that uh, Hunt Club just got a 40 million round Series B, so congrats on that. I'm sure that's been huge for you guys. We did. We Um, did. It's a great team. Love being there. I I want to dive in around your entrepreneurial background and your your investment background as the kind of meat of today's show and then get into that subject we talked about. But I think just to set a little bit of short-term context, could you talk a little bit about Hunt Club just so people understand your current role?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Hunt Club is in the executive recruiting space. We're a new type of firm that places anywhere from director to C-level talent at growing startups, and those roles can be sales, marketing, operations, product engineering, you name it. Our main differentiator from other executive recruiting firms is if you go to the typical exec recruiting firm they only tap into candidates that are typically in their own networks. And so you're kind of limited by just the people that you work with. The model at Hunt Club is completely different. So we have a network of over 17,000 industry leaders that are connectors just like you and me. And when we source candidates, we rely on the connections of that network and we help incentivize
0: them by sharing the economics. And so that's the main differentiator from Hunt Club. Is that like a technology-based solution that kind of like accesses people's contacts or LinkedIn or something like that? You got it.
1: You got it exactly. It's twofold. And so we use technology to figure out who would really be a good connection. Right? So there's millions of candidates out there for these roles and we figure out, oh, these 10 people, these 20 people would be ideal. And then we rely on the human part, the 17,000 plus mm-hmm. people that are in industry and rely on their connections. And so when you get to a candidate, I'm sure you've returned calls from executive recruiters. It's really tough to find candidates at the right time. Mm-hmm. And so our tech and our network and our community enable us to find the best candidates. That's
0: great. Really cool. Very interesting. You know, you've got a great history in uh, technology based business. So I think you obviously have an eye for picking good ones. So I'm sure that's been a great role. I want to jump back, you know, to a little bit more of your history now. You know, sometimes people have heard me describe myself as an entrepreneur's entrepreneur, and I think you're clearly an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. So what's your favorite part about being an entrepreneur? Yeah, I
1: I actually consider myself a little bit of an accidental entrepreneur. (laughs) When I graduated from college, like I did the big company thing. Like I was a software engineer, worked at Goldman, you know, like really big bank. And it was only after business school where I discovered like the true passion of building something new. And I hadn't really thought about that until I started doing startups. And so my favorite part of being at a startup is working with a team of people working towards a common goal. And I know it sounds a little trite, but it is a team sport. And ironically, when I grew up, I only played individual sports. And so I think I'm still making up that I never played a team sport. So I just, you know, love being in the trenches with a group of other people.
0: That's great. So, you know, you talked a little bit about how you started as a software engineer. What was the kind of, you know, beginning of what you, at least you consider your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah. The very first one was probably
1: back in college when I was studying computer science and ended up just creating my own business. Mm-hmm. And I somehow landed like a like Citibank as a customer. And so, I we was basically just doing like database work. And so, that was the first taste of it. But it didn't really like return until nearly like 10 years later, like after going to business school. And when the thought of going back to my old job as a software engineer at a bank while I love the role while I was doing it, like scale of one to 10 was probably like an, an eight or nine. I just absolutely loved it. The thought of going back and doing just that just seemed much more small to me. I, I ended up after graduating from business school, joining like a
0: hundred person startup. And that
1: was the first foray into actually, you know, as an operating startup. Good. Good.
0: Good. One of the things um, I've noticed when I talk to people who have had successful runs, that there's kind of like an inflection point where when they look back at their history, they say, yeah, you know, I did this, I did this, but there was this moment when this thing happened to me that I kind of noticed my trajectory change or things became easier or, you know, it, it just, it was like an accelerant to the career. I love asking successful people what that kind of moment was for them. Did you feel like you have this kind of inflection point where it like things kind of quickly started to change or has it always been kind of like more gradual?
1: Yeah, Freddie, I'm so fired up that you asked that because I hadn't actually thought about that. And now that I'm 52, I do remember that moment. It was about half of my lifetime ago. So I'm like 26 years old yeah. and I was trying to figure out what to do for like the rest of my career. And so I was filling out you know, business school applications and it got to the question of like, what really like drives you and what occurred to me after that self-discovery process of having to write those essays was that anything big that you want to achieve, it's very difficult to do alone. And so you just need other people to come along the journey. And and when I had the realization that God, I really love working with other people, you know, whether it's as a contributor or a team leader, you know, whatever that is, and I couldn't imagine any other path where I wouldn't get to work with the team. And so You know, as an engineer, you have different paths you can pursue. Like you can go the very technical path where you just like love the craft of solving technical problems. You can be a VP of engineering and kind of like manage that team. And so for me, it was around like marshalling a bunch of other folks like to chase a common goal, to defeat a common enemy. And I was like, oh, my God, why doesn't everyone
0: want to do this? Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I've told some people that when I think about my entrepreneurial life, that it was really when I started mocking around with this pirate radio station called The Boom that became a, an internet radio station that was kind of like where I really feel like it, it changed my whole life in terms of becoming immersed in the internet world. But when I think about it more through like the lens of like management and almost like the career side of it, like you said, some people are technical and then they kind of shift over to the other side of it. A lot of people wouldn't guess this about me, but I started on the technical side as well. And I'll never forget it was after I sold my first business. They said to me, uh, Freddie, what do you think you want to do over here? And I said, well, you know, I, it was an internet service provider. I was like, well, mm-hmm. you know, I could uh, run network operations. So I could, you know, run the the data center. Like I could do this. And they're like, we think we'd like you to be the head of sales. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not interested in doing that. And they're like, well, this is the comp package for the head of sales. like, you know, I actually really like the sound of this of sales roles. That sounds actually really great. I've always considered myself kind of a begrudgingly good business development guy. But, you know, it's funny how sometimes when you've had these moments where like it can change, you know, the, all the roles that you have after. So yeah, very funny.
1: It does seem like whenever you make those decisions, it's a... Fifty-one forty-nine, sort of thing, right? Like in the bizarre world, you would have made the other decision and you yeah. kind of wonder what that other was. Yeah, path it's really And the anecdote that I do want to share with you is there's a pretty successful VC and here's Argwall at Battery and uh, it was only many years, many years ago, but I finally had met him after uh, all these years and it turns out we have a ton in common. Like we're both immigrants, we grew up in New York and Flushing, we went to the same undergrad, we studied the same thing, we went to the same business school, And then when you look at his career, every single choice that he made was actually in my career, I made the opposite choice. And so when he graduated, he went for consulting. I ended up doing like, you know, something in software in between his two years, he ended up going super deep in tech. I went to like banking after he graduated, he took a path towards VC. I like went towards the startup path. And so even though make these decisions and you wonder what the other side looks like at the end of the day. You know, because everything is a fifty-one forty-nine. Like you can't second-guess yourself. And, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Looking across the table, we're both
0: fine. Yeah, that's right. I totally agree. So yeah. I've noticed on the shelf behind you, you've got a lot of great family photos. How many kids do you have? Do you mind me asking? I uh, just have one. Okay, that's great because uh, it saves makes this next question less awkward. So I was going to say, <laughs> you're not supposed to have favorite children. So you clearly have a favorite child because you have one. But I'm now gonna ask you that same question about startups and you've been involved with six of them.
1: Uh, I don't
0: mean to put you on the spot, but do you have a favorite startup? We'll exclude Hunk Club from the list. I'm scared to ask
1: that question, right? I do, but I think I've got a little bit of a wiggle room to give an answer. What I found was for me, the one I think most about like, you know, startup time was where? And so that was the company we had sold to PayPal. I think for me, why that was the favorite was It really felt like a team where we had a tremendously deep bench and it was one of those places that was apolitical. Mm -hmm. And on paper, when you looked at all the people there, you're like, well, it seems like you have like these people that have different talents that could potentially have really like big overlapping roles. Like how do you not like have to fight for it? The culture that we just set up there was that Going back to sport, we want to win. And so if I'm in left field and the other person's in right field and I'm a great right fielder too, we know how to like just divide and conquer. And so for me, that was just the favorite one. And what I've also found is that over time, because the, name on the business card, the company name on the business card while transient, like you work with the same people again and again. So many of those folks I've worked with at other startups before and after. And so it feels like it's almost like these families that sort of follow you. And so it's less about the startup having a favorite startup. It was at that moment in time, we had a pretty magical team. And so that's That's a really interesting trend
0: I've noticed. uh, It's when I talk to entrepreneurs who've done it a couple of times is, it's like you're collecting smart people in your journey and then you're like, okay, these two, I'm definitely taking on the next one adventure with me. And then it's like, oh, those two plus the other one from the last one. And you start finding these people you just click with. And I think, you know, being an entrepreneur is so hard on its own that like anything that can make it easier... You can't put a price on these things, you know? I joke that I've got what one guy I love to work with and I call him my creative soulmate and it's like finishes my sentences kind of thing. And like, you know, what, what's the value of, of that? That's really interesting. I've heard some other people say that. I'd, I never really thought about it until I started doing a SHIP that I kind of noticed that was an interesting pattern of successful entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, if you can get the band back together and you know... Yeah, like, getting the band back together, right?
0: exactly. <laughs>
1: it, it's a ridiculous shortcut, right? Yeah, like, That's yeah. years off of the yeah, whole Yeah, I totally world. agree.
0: Yeah. So changing gears a little bit, well, I guess we were talking about how hard it is to be an entrepreneur. What do you think is the hardest part about being an entrepreneur?
1: For me, it's, the, it's like the altitude change, if I think a little bit about mm-hmm. it, which I, I think I'm actually pretty good at it, right? In terms of thinking for the long term, but then dropping down to... The 50,000 foot view of like where you want to be in like five years to the 10 foot view of, oh, you know, you need to get this piece of collateral out now. It's got a typo. And so that altitude change is very, very wearing, like having to go up and then back mm-hmm. down. And that for me has always been like, I feel like it's been challenging, but you have mm-hmm. to do it so many times that like I feel like I've actually been pretty good at it now. Mm-hmm. But uh, all along, it's that like that context switch, I think is the mm-hmm.
0: hardest part. That's interesting. Do you ever get like fatigue issues, basically? Oh, like like in my second business, people ask me, why'd you want to sell it? I said, I was just tired. You, you know, Like I just, I felt like it was kind of wearing me down. I think that's a little bit of like that context change. Have you ever dealt with anything like that? Or has that it not been an issue for you? For sure. I, I think by proxy, I've seen that more. Some of the founders yeah. that I've- I did bootstrap made. that one though. And I think that was part of the fatigue, but I think we're going to get into that in a little bit, you know?
1: Yeah, Freddie, totally. Maybe this is why I think myself of a little bit of accidental entrepreneur. A lot yeah. of the startups I've been a part of was at a stage where there was a big delta between where they currently were and where they could be in a short period of time. And yeah. so maybe if I do anything well, it's around picking like really good teams at really good times. Yeah. And so I haven't felt the the duration of like, oh God, this thing's just been going on forever kind of thing. Yeah. And so, but I've seen other founders absolutely five years, six years, seven years, 10 years in, yeah. like hitting that yeah. hitting that wall.
0: Well, while we're uh, talking about how hard it is to be an entrepreneur, and for those of you who might be watching O'Ship for the first time today, I think it's a great time to reintroduce this kind of core premise of O'Ship. You know, I think when you look at a lot of successful people, like a lot of the guests I've been lucky enough to have on our ship over the years, it is very easy to see their success and just think that it was like this amazing thing that just kind of happened overnight or they're just so brilliant that these things magically happened to them. And I think, you know, one of the things we like to try and point out here is that the path is rarely a straight line. It's not A to B, it's, you know, A to B to C to E to F to Z to X to Y. And then maybe you might make it back to B and have this kind of success. And so I love taking our guests and saying, can you tell us a no ship story? And, you know, maybe this is something that happened to you as an entrepreneur, maybe it happened to you as an investor, maybe it even happened to you in the corporate world, whatever it may be, but it's maybe something where it was something that happened to you that maybe it changed the way you think about yourself as a leader, changed the way that you've been an investor, an entrepreneur, Maybe it was none of those things. Maybe it was just some crazy thing that happened to you that you somehow survived unscathed. But whatever it is, I'd love to hear your ship story for us today.
1: So you're asking me for a failure?
0: Yeah, i I'm a, fail. I guess you, you're still here. So is zero it zero failure? failures? I've
1: never failed. failed before. Come on, that's 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 how it <laughs> works. A hundred percent right. A hundred percent of the time. <laughs> Oh God! I've, yeah, I've I've dropped the ball so many times in so many places, and I think um, after you've done a couple of startups, you know failure is part of the journey, right? Failure, you learn from it. I'm thinking of like, I have like a business one, and then I've got like a very personal one. I don't know which of the two is. You know, better. man, if
0: they're great stories, I'm down. I got time for you. Let's let's hear it.
1: I'll first start with a real quick business one, which was we were doing a mobile photo sharing startup. It was just before Instagram. We were buying a lot of ads. We felt like we were like starting to hit it, right? And so we got to a point where we had people in every single country in the world using our mobile photo sharing product. And we were like, if we can get our customer acquisition costs to a place where we would generate like um, low enough that we were generating positive revenue, we were fantastic. And so we were about 4X off. And one day when, because we were buying a whole bunch of ads, we were probably spending like $100,000 a month on this. Something had failed and we like forgot and it was like running for a little while. And it turns out, had we not been buying the ads, it turns out like the actual organic behavior of consumers was so far off that the 4X was close to like 20X. And so when we had that realization, again, had it not been for a small technical problem, we would have just been like chugging ahead and not like looking at two different cohorts. We were so far off the business that this was beyond pivot. So it wasn't even like, Hey, let's do something different. It's like, we don't have a business. And so that was like, a. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever have to uh, like bleep out the curse of an Oh ship. Uh, but, um, it was, yeah, it was not a good time for the company, but it happens.
0: And how'd you deal with it?
1: We ended up, pretty much changing the company all around. We switched from like a B 2 C model to a B 2 B model. We recruited a new CEO. We took a path, like, you know, this is like more than just a small pivot. I ended up laying off half the company. And so this was one of those experiences, which actually bridges to the personal one, which is when we came to that realization, it was a, hey, we're gonna have an all hands meeting, everyone on this side of the table, which is essentially the direct consumer and marketing mm-hmm. side no longer has a job. And and by the way, I'm sitting on this half of the table. And so as co-founder of this company, for the good of the company, I'm also letting myself go. And so that's a kind of a painful thing where after I did that, I'm like, is anyone ever going to give me money again? Am I, you know, worthless? And so it was was really hard to go through. And so that kind of bridges to the personal OSHIP moment where, yeah, you learn from it. And I guess my lesson was, Failure part of it. Things go on. People understand and went on to the next startup.
0: Mm. Uh, well, uh, respect. I think navigating those is never fun. But again, you, you survived on the other side of it. If you could go back in time, is there any way you could have done it differently? I guess if you couldn't have guessed that kind of unforeseen customer utilization, like is there some way you could have seen that ahead of time if you look back at it? Yes, yes.
1: We shouldn't have put all of the eggs in that basket like so early on and Mm. we were just so convinced that we were right Mm. and so what i would do differently would be iterate faster Mm. test and learn and so that was definitely a big thing
0: i've been there on that one i definitely think i had things i was so confident in that i didn't test them enough i didn't put them out in the market and uh I made some pretty painful mistakes there over the years as well. Well, yeah. let's uh let's change gears a little bit. You know, we talked about playing the startup game, so to speak. I think when you think about a startup, that the problem is that they're just so fast moving. I think as an entrepreneur or even an investor, being kind of more reflective, self-aware, honest about where you are in the business exactly like you were being a moment ago, and just kind of understanding what pressures drive entrepreneurs to make the decisions that they're doing at key inflection points is something that I think anyone can find value, whether you're an entrepreneur, an investor, even just someone who's, you know, working in a traditional business environment, you know, kind of understanding the right way to make the right decision at the right points. And I'd love to hear from your perspective, why do you think about this uh, like a game a little bit?
1: Yeah, I do think not to belittle the startup. Yeah, understood. Thing, it, I it is like a high stakes game of poker, right? I'm not a gambler and so it's not like I, you know, can draw deeply from it, but it does seem like from the handful of startups I've been part of and the ones that I've invested in, that there are these points in the business where you have to figure out like where to go. And the analogy that has worked for me and some other founders is that if it is poker at every one of these inflection points you have to figure out like, do you raise, right? And you actually kind of literally do you raise more money and you kind of double down. Do you stay the course and you keep in a place where hey things are just all going smoothly? Let's just you know keep going, we're in good shape. <clears throat> or do you fold right? And so fold meaning do you sell out? Do you exit the business? Right. And so those three decisions like it happen at these times where it's usually around key inflection points of the business itself. And so as a founder, as an entrepreneur. I think you want to keep all three of those options open and look to see which of those three at this particular moment in time is best for the business. Mm. So kind of the general sort of playbook that, that I've seen emerge over you know, 20 some odd years. But for me, that's why it is a, a high stakes game of poker.
0: Uh, like I said, I don't think you're diminishing and you're belittling it. If Albert Einstein can call life a game, you can call the startup <laughs> the <poker laughs> world. So you're in good company. I think there's something healthy to thinking about life like a game a little bit. I don't know many people that would say that if you don't enjoy what you do and think about it a little bit like a game, uh, that it, it makes it a little easier to wrap your head around it. Um, and hell, I think we go through a phase of trying to gamify everything at some point. So <laughs> so, um, so I don't think this is a, a bad way to think about it. Um, let's break these down. So I think you said it was, it was. Uh, I'm not a diehard poker player, but so so you've got raise hold and fold is that kind of through the three big kind of moves so um just kind of break them down a little bit one at a time so all the startups that you were involved with were you guys bootstrapping them how many were bootstrapped did you guys raise on all of them
1: yeah, they, they were all venture backed. In many of those cases, I joined an operating team where I was not one of the founders. And yeah. so an all told of the six ventures, we raised roughly about 150 million in total in venture capital and sold them for about 750, 755. And so around 5x return overall. Awesome. And the default mode is, you know, uh, better than anyone is just keep going, like raise, 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 like raise a big round, like increase valuation. And so I think... By default, especially if you're in the venture back world, different if you're in a kind of bootstrap business or like maybe something that's a little bit more sort of customer-funded, but the default scenario people will usually think about is like, you know, how do I raise my next round? And so generally, almost all the founders that I talk to are in that frame of mind. Like, when do I raise next? And that one, I think, is not particularly hard to like get people's heads around, right? And so you know, maybe 10% of the time, someone's like, oh, I'm not going to raise. I'm like, okay, all right.
0: Awesome. The companies where I didn't raise money I did pretty well with in the end, the one that I imploded was the, <laughs> the one that I <laughs> raised money with. It. And I think it gave me a kind of a full sense of confidence but I think it's different for everyone. Now you're also looking at things through the lens of an investor, which I think is really interesting. So I noted earlier, you've done I think about over over 80 angel investments, either directly or through your angel group.
1: Yeah, yeah and, and I finally did the tally. And so where my heart is, I think you and I have kindred spirits yeah. here. It's like, I love startups. I love operating. Yeah. You clearly with your OSHIP podcast love talking about entrepreneurship. And so that's where my heart is as an operator. The angel investing side is more of a... Uh, side thing, side hustle. Mm. And I did the tally. I actually lost track of it. So I was at 97 is the most recent. Hey, you're almost hitting me, your
0: 100th so. episode. It yeah, so like. just, <laughs> just about
1: getting there. Having seen a whole bunch of different patterns on that yeah. side, the raise is something that's probably the thing that people, I talk to founders mostly about. Yeah. Like, who did I talk to? How should I position it? And so that, that one of the three options of, all right, let's go in for more chips. Yeah. You know, let's put more chips on the table is generally the one that I talk to them most about.
0: Where have you seen, I guess, with a little bit of eye on kind of 2023, obviously, there's some nervousness about a recession. We're not technically in one yet, but I think a lot of people worried about it. I'm a healthy paranoia. I think it's not a bad thing in an entrepreneur. So I, you know, I worry about that kind of stuff as well. And I even have another company that we're releasing. I'm going to be doing some fundraising in 23 myself. So there you go. um, So it should be interesting. Just a general sense. What do you think the climate's going to be like for people raising money in 23?
1: There's definitely a ton of doom and gloom narrative Mm -hmm. that's out there. I've talked to a handful of journalists and. For whatever reason it seems like it gets the most airplay mm-hmm. so some companies some startup tech companies that have likely grown a little too fast and so you're seeing the result of that, I think at the end of the day like I'm also cautiously optimistic, but I think there's like so much dry powder still, and mm-hmm. because the venture capital cycles are kind of disconnected from the capital markets where you know these funds have you, know, you raise your million fund, you have to deploy the capital, right? You're going to be a little bit more careful and you're going to be a little bit more stingy on valuations, which is fine, right? You take advantage of that. But from the founder standpoint, they're still out there, right? And so the conversations last longer and you have to talk to more people. But I am optimistic that from at least an early stage standpoint, if fundraising in 2023, 2024
0: is what you have to do. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: you know, it'll be more work, but you can still get it done. Right? I agree with the, you know, the bigger funds, they've raised the money, they got to deploy it. You might say that a lot of angel investors, obviously, there's some super wealthy people that angel yep. invest, it doesn't matter about anything. But there's other people that are angel investing, and but they just sold maybe their value of their stock portfolio, go down 20% or whatever, and they're a little more nervous. Do you think there'll be a change in the angel space or...
1: Uh, I, I think it, for whatever reason, it tracks pretty closely to institutional, which is, is just kind of odd, right? And so it's like these three things are all connected, but they're not really connected because such a you know, time lag, right? Time horizon. Mm-hmm. Most of the angels, you know, even our own angel group, have seen volumes go down by quite a bit, and it's exactly the effect that you were talking about, right? When you look at your overall net worth and you allocate X percent of it to uh, alternative investments and early stage startup, you know, when you write that check, you shouldn't expect to see it back. We have definitely seen some angels pull back in that. And so I think for 2023 advice for founders is you should continue to pursue value-added individuals and angels, right, that know your space. You should continue to pursue institutional VCs that also understand your space. And know that it will likely take a little bit longer. And so maybe that bridges into the like kind of stay or hold option where like what are things that you can do to either bootstrap or extend if you've raised a previous round? Like how are ways you can get creative to to weather the storm? Although I guess the analogy with the ship, right? Like so weather the waves and weather the storm a little bit better. Like those are all things that for sure you'll be doing. But uh, yeah, it'll be a little bit more challenging. But I still think those are things that as a founder, it's on the table. Like you should continue mm. to figure out how to grow the company.
0: And then, uh, one last question on the raise front before we talk about the stay and fold. You've been on companies that have been raising funds, but now you've also helped people to receive those funds. Where have you seen people going wrong when they've raised? Like I said, in my case, I think I gave me a little of overconfidence and some yeah. issues. Um, After so many years of bootstrapping, I was like, "Holy crap, we've got money!" (laughs) So, have you ever seen it kind of gone wrong for anyone else, or seen anyone kind of make some mistakes? Advice, basically, you could give people.
1: Yeah, I've made tons of mistakes. I've seen people make consistent mistakes. Like, so one that I personally made was I wasn't shooting big enough, like you know, thinking big enough, and so Mm -hmm. I was going in and pitching oh, if you get 2x your money back, is not a great return. You know when you pitch an institutional, it has to be like a 10x return, right? So that's kind yeah. of like mistake number one. I saw another one where like first-time founders also have the challenge of holding the idea too closely, thinking like the idea is everything, mm-hmm. right? And so after you've done it for a little while and you've done a few starts, you know it really is about the team and execution. Mm-hmm. But I've seen first-time founders just, you know, like not
0: share their idea. And so it never really kind of too, too in the you know in, in the with the, the blinders on or whatever you want to call it, are just too too stuck. Very much, they they just like oh I don't want to share my
1: idea, but then you can't get the people that you need. You can't reach escape velocity, right? That mm-hmm. ignition cost is just too high, and so I've seen that a lot. And then maybe the most concrete one that I've seen most often is that I think there's a pretty well tested playbook for fundraising. There's three steps to it. So I call it an ABC, right? So aim for a tight target of who you want to raise from. B, break down the barriers between you and these investors. And so it's largely socialization. And then C, close it by creating FOMO. The mistake that I see a lot of folks is they jump right to the ask hmm. and it changes the dynamic because the ask itself to like, you know, close if I've never met you before, the likelihood I'll write a check is just really small and it starts a shot clock that you don't want to start. And so Mm. that's probably the biggest mistake, like not socializing and giving it time for you to like, you know, get your idea and iterate in the market. And then the lack of the FOMO side, I think because we're all humans and there's psychology, Mm -hmm. it's really hard for an investor to write that check if they think that there's going to be you know more time or, other ways that they can improve the ROI of their own investment by, you know, giving you another homework assignment. And mm-hmm. maybe the best phrase I heard recently from one of the founders that I invested in was um, he legitimately asked an institutional investor uh, after like a 20 minute call, it's like, yeah, oh, it sounds great. What's the smallest check you can write? <laughs> it wasn't even like, he wasn't being coy. Like he just was yeah. in a place and they moved like that, like end of the day, wired the 500000 <laughs> yeah. like, like, that's like a golden phrase. So I'll have to put that into the playbook.
0: I, uh, I tell you one bit of advice I would give people out there raising money is be ready to basically sign the contract. So like, I think that a lot of people go out there and they get people pumped up and they do it before they've got all their ducks in a row, their paperwork, their fundraising documents done. And then the investor's like, hey, I want to invest. And they're in that moment where they're excited and they've got FOMO and they're pumped up. And they're like, oh, I need seven weeks to deal with my lawyers or whatever to get something that's signable that they could do. And, and it's like a hot date, you know, all the momentum goes out of it. And then the investors start overthinking it and over rationalizing it or maybe some other hotter date showed up, so to speak, and the funds went someplace else. So I don't think you should engage with investors unless like when they're pumped up, they're like, I want to give you money. You're like, great, I will send you the details. You can sign it tomorrow. Let's do this. Yeah. And be ready. Be ready for the dance, so to speak. So yeah. we'll see how many weird analogies we can squeeze in today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. but, but it's true. It's, <laughs> true. You know, it's like if you don't heed the advice, then then yeah. sure. Okay. So let's jump to the next big one. So let's talk a little bit more about stay. A lot of people I think are out there and they're, you know, they're trying to raise as much money as possible. Some people were saying, hey, you know, raise as much as you can. If if it does get weird over the next couple of years, you may want that extra money in the bank. But also you can lose control of your company. You can dilute yourself down to nothing as the original owner. So what's your take on basically the concept of stay or basically keep keeping going without raising money or continuing to bootstrap? Yeah, sometimes
1: the decision is sort of made for you, right? And so the way <laughs> that I tend to think of that is if you're at an inflection point, and this maybe kind of bridges all three options, but if you're at an inflection point in the company, right now it's January, 2023, you could raise the next round, you can keep going, you can decide to potentially sell the company the stay option is if there really isn't a great deal on the raise side. So if the raise is just not like a very good option, either because valuation or the terms or the amounts, not what you want, or it's not the investor that you want, then that continue that current path is looking more attractive. Right. And Mm -hmm. so that is operating the business. It's doubling down on the customers. It's Mm -hmm. getting a little bit more creative in terms of like, is there a new product that you've been thinking about in many ways founders get pushed towards or they feel pressure to take the raise option mm-hmm. but as an operator the stay of the course build the business is actually your main muscle right that that's mm-hmm. the thing you should be really good at and so in some cases if you like discount the raise option then you're going back to building the business and mm-hmm. It's a lot of different things, and I'm sure you and a lot of the listeners that have gone through this process before know that when you're in the middle of fundraising, it becomes everything, and it's like you don't even think about your customers at that moment. Mm. And so, it's they can't wait to get them back to build the business. So that stay option, you know, presumably you've got some sort of runway if you're trying to extend the runway, yes. is probably the most natural muscle that you can be
0: using at that moment in time. If a company is profitable even lightly profitable and they've got six months runway in the bank so they're not going to go you know bust tomorrow mm-hmm. if there's a dip but you're still playing it pretty close if you know what i mean i think people and certainly if i put my own kind of self in that situation i definitely be running We're thinking to myself okay i can do this and i can continue to grow slowly and healthily and i can own more of my business with my founder or co-founders or whatever, or any of the existing shareholders. But then you also risk that inverse of that saying, yeah, but someone else could go raise a bunch of money and eat all the market share up and, Mm -hmm. and crush me. It's hard to identify the right path. And there's so many variables. You can't be aware of everything going on in the world and who may pop out of nowhere. If you were giving some advice to an entrepreneur, if they were at an inflection point like that, what would you say with the amount of interest? In
1: any given point in time, you're going to have these options. And it's actually a little bit like looking for a job, right? Like you have all these different options. So January, whatever the three, like maybe the raise is more interesting or the stay yeah, is yeah, yeah. more compelling. In February, that will shift to something else. Like yeah. just going back to the, the waves in the ship, like you're gonna hit a different yeah. like crest, right? And so things will look different. And so I think when you hit those inflection points, you do need to take a look at all three of those and try to map out which at this moment in time is the best decision to make, right? Mm -hmm. And so if the raise is terrible because you're just like, you know, terrible term sheet and terrible investor, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. and then you pursue this other path and then Mm -hmm. you sail on that course for, you know, the next Mm -hmm. six months or you plan on doing Mm -hmm. that. And then when the business changes and the market changes in six months, you reevaluate like those three options again. But I think you're optimizing locally, right, for that Mm -hmm. time. And so it's what's tough is like, you really want to optimize globally for long term. And so it is hard to see where the ship is going to be in three years' time when you're kind of bouncing the waves like today.
0: It's a tricky thing to watch. I think a lot of it also has to do with the kind of where people are personally, if you haven't sold a business before and aren't independently wealthy for whatever reason, you know, something to be said for taking some money off the table, if you know, take the path that it's going to help you be successful and maybe you're not going to retire forever on it but at least you know you're in a great spot for you and your family on the inverse of that I'm not going to out the person but I've got certain people that I've chatted with over the years who I'm very close with I've seen them literally turn down many many 100 million dollar offers when they don't have any money in the bank and I'm like they're like man I'm not selling until I get a billion dollars and you're like are you insane? But then I've seen these people go on to basically pull that off. <laughs> so you got to admire the crazy ones, so to speak. Uh, oh, oh I, I have
1: one. Uh, can I out, out him? I probably can because it's somewhat public. Um, so uh, my family's pretty close to the, the sea of ways. Right. And so back when, I think it raised like a $25 million round and he turned down like an offer from like Apple or someone for like 400 million. It was like, for me, it was like, what are you doing? That's the stupidest thing ever. And and it's the example that you gave though, but he was holding out for the, you know, at least from what I could tell from the outside, he was holding out for like we think the mega mega offer and the terms are, you know, I care about the team. I care about where things are being developed. And so he couldn't get the terms right. So it wasn't just about the valuation, but you know, sold it for, for the yeah, building, when this Yeah, right?
0: when this guy pulls up to the dinner table, I don't even think he needs a chair, his balls are so big. He <laughs> <laughs> just unreal when he, told, when he told me he was doing it. But hey, you know, again, you gotta respect that. And I think the end of the day is- it's, I think it's, you're referring uh, to your
1: guy, right? Not my guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, just yeah, just yeah.
0: clarify. But I, I don't know, you might be in the same club, but right. I think the point is that uh, it's a personal decision at the end of the day. It is wild to watch how people handle these inflection points differently. So the last and final one I want to talk to you about, which I think is the hardest one, arguably, is knowing when it's time to fold, you know, whether it's selling, looking for a aqua hire, like a soft landing, or even potentially shutting down. And I'd love to get your kind of take on that play and that inflection point.
1: Yeah, the good news is typically when you hit a company inflection point, like a stage where you've hit a bunch of milestones, you're trying to figure out what goes next, the raise and the sell, like a corp dev deck and an investor pitch deck have a lot of common elements, right? There's it's some diff- different stuff at the end, right? And around the ask and, and all that. But because you have to position the company in such a way where you're trying to, to illustrate what the value is, you can evaluate both at the same time. And so we have a very concrete one. One of the startups in the past, we were debating whether or not to raise like a pretty big next round. And so we were debating the raise. The stay wasn't as appealing, right? Because we felt like that time in the market based on everything that was happening, that some move made a lot of sense. And so we simultaneously you know, lined up a bunch of next round investors, next series investors, and also had a pretty strategic process around looking for potential buyers at that Moment, Right. And they came mm-hmm. from a lot of different categories and some were very aligned to the business. Some were more adjacent. But um, in our world, we were looking at the two things like, do we raise another $40 million round? Uh, this is not Hunt Club, but this is roughly the same number. Uh, so yeah, $30, 40000000 million. Or do we sell the company? And in that case, it made a lot of sense based on where the market was, was to sell. But we use that same process to do so. You're talking to very different mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And now talk about not building the company. When mm-hmm. we did that, like most of the company was kind of just, you know, continuing on sort of autopilot. We were serving customers, but the founding team mm-hmm. and a handful of us, I have worn the corp dev hat at mm-hmm. a few different places, is basically just working on those two options, like
0: mm-hmm.
1: razor razor fold, right? Yeah. And we looked at the two. We're like, okay, which one looks more appealing And this? Sometimes it goes this way, like, you know, let's raise, we're going to put our chips in. And other times like, you know what, the price is pretty good.
0: One one thing I think is really awesome that's happened. I had a chap on Oship the other day and he was the founder of a company called Micro Acquire. And then I think they just rebranded as Acquire. And, you know, it's effectively a platform for people to sell. In particular with him, it's focused on software businesses, a world that you and I are, are passionate about. And... When my third company guy didn't make it, like I didn't have a soft landing and I had a really talented team. And I could have had a soft landing for myself and the investors, but I just didn't know how to do it. And, you know, with some of those platforms like that, I could have gone out there and gotten a small amount of money for it. It wasn't about the money. Ultimately, it would have been just about, you know, letting our tech or our team go into another business. So it could have been a little bit more graceful. Um, and I think that's a path that people should consider as well. And I think that lately, because of platforms like Microacquire and, and there are others out there, I think it's a lot easier to have a bit more of a graceful landing. I would tell people that if they do have to fold, the advice I would have for them is, is twofold. One, do it with class, dignity, and integrity. Because sometimes people fail and there are investors that I've worked with that Even though I lost their money, I feel would invest in me again because I handled it the right way and then know that I'm a person of integrity. You can lose a lot of things in this world. You can lose a lot of money. You can lose some of your assets. You can lose a job, but you can't lose your reputation. You can give your reputation away through your own poor action, but no one can take your reputation away from it. I think it's choices that we make that will do that to you. On the other side of it, I'd say that I think it's really easy when the founders they fall in love with these the companies they're like children. We I mean, as we kind of made the analogy earlier, and I think it's really easy to put so much of yourself into a company. And I don't mean just your time and your life, but I mean I've seen you know people pour a lot of their personal finances in there. And I sometimes think about like uh, you know it's like a child that you need to be a little firmer with and have like a cutoff. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of founders, like they keep pouring their own personal money. I look, I'm guilty of like, you know, mortgaging a house to make sure one of my companies survive. Luckily, that worked out for me in, in the long run. But I've seen people kind of just keep pouring, pouring more and more money in and they lose their business. They lose everything else they had as well because they were not rational. When you're that tired and you're getting near a place that you fold, people start getting a little crazy. And I think if you've got an entrepreneurial friend or you're an investor for backing a company, I think this is the time we have to rally behind people and help them handle folding the right way because there is a right way to do it, in my opinion.
1: Absolutely. You're totally right. It's so tough because your identity gets wrapped into that, but these are separate things. And so I think keeping that in mind is really hard at the moment. It gets easier when you look back at it. And given today's environment, yes, there are a lot of other examples of founders that are probably best in finding a, a soft landing, right? Yeah. And so that yeah, that third option is something that they
0: should consider. Yeah, and it's not just even dignity for the founders, it's dignity for their team too, you know? And I think there's something to that. David, this was an awesome chat. It was a perfect episode 100. I couldn't have been more thrilled with that. A great way to start the first recorded episode of 2023. I really wanna thank you again for coming on. And, and, and I just want to take this moment again to thank our audience, thank our subscribers, thank our listeners on all the audio platforms, whether you're on Spotify, Apple, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or you're watching us on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, any of the other platforms that we may be streaming on. If you want to learn more about us, just visit oshipshow.com, and this will link to all the different places you can consume our content. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and the best way you can support us is by subscribing, liking, or sharing this content. And David, if people want to find out more about you, what's the best way for people to find you? You can just find me on Twitter. So I'm ChangDS, C-H-A-N-G-D-S.
1: And um, if you actually just go to www.davidchang.me, uh, there's plenty of other tips for startups. And um, awesome. and so yeah, just check out my website. I'm happy to help however I can.
0: I love that. That's great. Well, you helped a lot of people today just with some of the great insights you had. I enjoyed it. I consider it a new friendship. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to meet in person sometime soon. Thank you again for being on our ship. It really meant the world to me that you were here.
1: Yeah. Congrats on all the great work that you're doing and all the folks that you're helping. So, happy 100.
0: Hey, happy 100. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for watching our ship. We'll see you next week.